Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's Tuesday, October 28th, and you're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Radio Network. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you live this morning from Blast Off Studios in Times Square as usual. Um, I wanted to remind everybody that this coming, uh, well, actually a week from Thursday is the New York City Condo Expo on November 6th at the New York Hilton, and I will be moderating uh, a session with top brokers and uh, some presidents of some of the firms here in real estate in New York. So please stop by at 12 o'clock, 12 noon to about one thirty, one forty-five. That's the New York City Condo Expo next Thursday, November 6th at the New York Hilton. Uh, it's also Halloween this coming Friday, so hopefully everybody is prepared for those festivities. Here in New York, it's always a big parade and lots of festivities, so we're looking forward to it. Uh, let's talk about some hot topics today uh, with the panel. I have my panel on with me for the full hour. We're going to talk about tracking some of New York City co-op sales records. Apparently, what's been happening in this very hot market that we've been going through for about a year, year and a half, is that the prices of co-ops has been meeting those of the very high-priced condos. And that's very unusual in this town where co-ops have always been a little less expensive. But we'll talk a little bit about that. Better said the reasons behind it. Um, buildings charge a move-in and move-out fee uh, when purchasers are buying an apartment brand new to the building. So, you know, a lot of people say, why is this necessary? What is it for? What is the money used for, et cetera? We'll talk a little bit about that. Living on the highest floor in a building, what are the pros and what are the cons? You know, everybody says to me when we're out looking, I prefer a high floor, I want a view. But other than a view, really, what are some of the pros and certainly what are some of the cons of living on high floors in these Manhattan skyscrapers. Many high-end listing, high listings these days that have been on the market for a while seem to be fizzling and, you know, buzz out there as to uh, why is this happening? You know, the hot marketplace, the trophy apartments, the very expensive apartments seem to have been flying off the market. All of a sudden, there seems to be a little bit of a slowdown. We're going to touch on that a bit and see if we can uncover some of the reasons for that happening. And in Miami, there is a condo developer who is looking for buyers, not necessarily in the local Miami marketplace, but here in New York City. How do you sell a condo in uh, Miami when you're sitting here in New York? We'll get some ideas from our panelists uh, as we go through. But first, let's start with some news items. New York City may not be the home to the United States' most expensive zip code, but it took more than half of the top 10 spots on Forbes' annual list of the country's priciest areas. So in the national ranking, number two, uh, Sagaponic, a town in the Hamptons, came in number two. Soho and Hudson Square came in number three. Lenox Hill, which is a portion of the Upper East Side, came in at number four. Again, the Upper East Side from 76th Street to 80th Street came in five. Chelsea came in eight. And rounding it off, the West Village here in town came in number nine. So we didn't make the number one zip code in the entire U.S., which in the past we have, but we took six of the top ten spots. So if that isn't telling, I don't know what is. I reported a couple of weeks ago that Woody Johnson's Upper East Side Co-op went on the market for sale at $75 million. Well, Manhattan now has a new record set for the most expensive co-op ever sold. This Fifth Avenue apartment just sold for over the asking price. Asking price, $75 million. It just sold for $80 million. The buyer is a billionaire, Leonard Blatt, 
Blatnick, and he's the world's number 32 richest man, according to Forbes. <clears throat> it has also been reported that Melissa Rivers will receive most of her late mother Joan Rivers' estate, including $75 million in cash. She will also inherit her late mother's upper east side condo, worth about $35 million. Joan Rivers died last month after complications following an outpatient throat procedure, which was very sad indeed. <clears throat> Gary Barnett's Extel Development Company will pay $24.7 million to the Park Avenue Christian Church as part of a plan that allows the developer to build a new residential tower at the site of the church's parish. Extel plans to build a condominium tower that cantilevers over the church's roof at Park Avenue and 85th Street. The agreement between the church and Extel works out to be about $640 per square foot of condo space, which is one of the highest paid for church air rights in Manhattan history. Jennifer Lopez is buying a penthouse apartment at the Whitman, a four-unit condo on the north side of Madison Square Park for $22 million. Jen will have another famous neighbor upstairs, Chelsea Clinton. The strong and record-setting year lagged, logged by residential properties in New York City in late 2013 and early 2014 is now being felt as far away as the Hamptons. Their volume of sales shot up nearly one-third during the third quarter of this year compared with 2013, while the median sale price jumped nearly 13%. According to Corcoran's Hampton office, a home for $97 million recently traded in East Hampton. It has been eight and a half years since construction started on One World Trade Center, and the city's tallest building is finally ready to open its doors. One World Trade Center will welcome its first tenant, the publisher Condé Nast, on November 1st, this according to the New York Times. Related companies, one of the city's biggest landlords, is buying a stake in Core Group, a boutique residential brokerage firm. The deal represents an equal partnership between Related and Core founder and CEO Sean Osher. Midtown Equities will maintain a minority interest in Core. The sale price has not been disclosed, according to the Times, and Osher will stay on in his current position. And finally, while Russians' uh, buyers are fleeing Sunny Isles Beach in Florida, investors from New York and Los Angeles are flocking to Miami in droves to buy luxury homes. It appears that the Russians have disappeared right around the time the U.S. imposed economic sanctions on Russia over its actions in the Ukraine. Sales <clears throat> seem to have dropped off the cliff. Interesting parallel. Anyway, getting on to one of our hot topics today... As we've talked about, prices at the top New York City's co-op market are catching up to the stratospheric levels seen at the city's swankiest new condos. The record pricing uh, has risen about 50% since 2012. Um, okay, guys, so I'm here talking to Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, Perul Bronvat from CORE, and Niall Longren from Dallian Real Estate. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Good morning everyone. So what do you think, guys, what is the opinion here on how, why co-op prices are starting to equal those of the high-priced condo prices that we've been seeing over the past couple of years? What is causing the, the bump up in that purchase price? Well, there's a lot of things going on, but I think there's two things that I'm seeing with the market I'm in is that it's basically supply and demand. We've had no inventory for a very long time. We've all discussed that week after week. And the people who really want the shiny condos, if they could afford or be financially qualified for co-ops, they're going to start looking at them if they really, really need to move, which is number one. Number two, 
some of the condos, not the real beautiful trophy ones, but many of the average ones do not have the square footage that a lot of people want, whereas the co-ops do. And if they're looking at it as a full year-round residence, people really want a home, not just an investment. But those are the two things that I'm seeing. But let me ask a question, though, because, you know, the minute, uh, you know, I, I read a story like this, I immediately go back to, you know, is this due to the global phenomenon of wealth, wealthy investors? And then I say, well, wealthy investors or any investor really is not what the, the buyer profile used to be in co-ops because you can't buy a co-op as an investor. You can't rent it. You can't use it as a pied de for the most part. If you buy a co-op in this town, it is your home. It needs to be your primary home because as a private organization, private company, the co-op boards don't allow anything other than permanent homes. And then you look at statistics. For example, at 740 Park Avenue in June, closed for $71.3 million. 960 Fifth Avenue, a penthouse, sold for $70 million in June. And 785 Fifth Avenue closed for $54 million in December of last year. Now, who... Who is buy, who are buying these these co-ops? I mean, is it the uber wealthy here in New York? And what stops the pricing of these units from escalating to you know any 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 number? Well, since I think you bring up a really good point, um, I feel that there is an exclusivity uh, that is so unique only to co-ops compared to condos. Um, and I really feel that it's just like, as far as the luxury market is concerned, um, that co-op sort of just came late to the game. By the way, sorry about my voice, guys. This is not the best I can do right now. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but it seems that, like, to, to me, it seems that co-ops were holding back because, generally speaking, especially properties that are these prized possessions, these trophy sort of properties, uh, seem to be a generational properties. So... Families tend to keep these high-end co-ops without selling them for year after year, decade after decade, and generation through generation. However, when condo market is getting as hot as it is and people are starting to see the numbers and returns that, that the condos have been posting, I think co-ops have actually started, so there, there are co-op owners saying, you know what, this is a great time to actually sell this generational property. But I don't think that the question is as much who's buying this, which is, of course, a very interesting one. But I think the interesting question is also what is making people sell these co-ops that they would not sell otherwise. Yeah, I agree with that, April. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at some of the prices here, you know, first of all, you know, at, let, let's just use 740 Park Avenue, always a very, you know, white glove, number one, prob- par- probably co-op in the city. But, you know, I'm sure that person who owns that unit didn't pay anywhere near $71.3 million. So not only are you making lifetime retirement money, but I mean, you're you're hitting a bonanza with some of the sales. So I agree with you. And I'd like to understand at some point, as you just said, what is really, you know, the impetus behind people, you know, waking up one morning and saying, I'm going to put my co-op on on the market, generational, as you said. I mean, people live in these things, you know, for, for years. Why are they putting them up on the market? Is it just to cash out or is there a, a, a marketplace behind, you know, that that strategy to come right right next door and, and, and purchase. You know I agree I agree with what Deborah said and it comes down to supply and demand. And when you see so much interest from the global super super rich coming in and trying to purchase, you know, high end condos and, you know, the the inventory being um, scarce as as time moves on, 
you know, they're moving to co-ops and then the co-op owners would ask themselves, okay, if there's such a demand, you know, now might be the time to, to sell that generational property. And what these international or, um, you know, these super rich who are buying these co-ops now, they like it because it's not as uh, fleeting as a, as a condo where anybody can just purchase and then rent out. You know, they're, they're a little bit more exclusive where, you know, the, the buyers actually live in the unit. So, you know, there is an exclusivity factor to it, especially on the 5th and, you know, Madison or Park Avenue co-ops. Yeah. I, I think I, we're going to start seeing a lot more uh, in the future. The, um, the gap between the condos and the co-ops are actually going to um, get actually narrower because of the new guard coming in and taking over and the old guard is sort of being, I guess, overrun. I mean, that's what I'm seeing. Like, you have a few new people get on the board in the Generation X and Y, and they are they get it. And they realize that a lot of the stuff that's been going on for the last few decades has been, you know, unethical, or it just doesn't even make sense uh, as far as what the co-ops and how they approve and what they don't approve. That's a really good it's point, Rachel. I mean, Actually, a lot of my clients, are, guys, hold when it for, they, when they guys, hold it for a second. We have we have to take a break. We will be right back after this uh, brief message. You're listening to uh, Good Morning New York on the Variety Channel here at Voice America. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. Niall, I'm sorry to have cut you off before break, but you wanted to make a comment on something that uh, Deborah was saying? Uh, it was actually Rachel, and I, I Rachel, agree with what me. she was saying about you know the the younger generations. And what what I'm seeing when I'm working with with buyers, generally my my clientele base is you know Gen Gen X Gen Y. And when they get in and they try and purchase um, in co-ops, the first thing that they tell me is, look, I want to get in, I want to buy in a co-op, and I want to get on the board, and I want to change the way that some of this stuff happens. I tell them off the bat, I'm like, whoa, breathe a little bit. I love where you're headed at. Let's let's get you into the co-op first. But once they get in, you know, what I've seen is they've been proactive um, in parts of the community, and they want to change these co-ops 
for the better because there there's certainly um, like Rachel was saying a, a gap between the condos and the condos and co-ops which I think we all see that is now starting to close. But Niall, also, I, I totally to I totally agree with. The most important point about that is that even right now, as we see, even in these high luxury, like higher end co-ops, um, I believe that the the idea of what is a primary home is very much changing, and there is a, a more relaxed attitude towards that. Which I think I believe that co-ops, if they really start looking at it as second and third homes are fine, uh, pied de terres are fine but no renting, um, I think that that would be the sort of the right move for co-ops to really create the right effect for, to really sort of um, be, uh, be uh, um, kind of competitive and, uh, and have a part in the marketplace uh, that would compete well with condos because one of the biggest frustrations that we see with high-end condo buyers is even if their unit is 25, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, uh, there are other units in the building that still have the flexibility where they don't really know who their neighbors are. Uh, with co-ops, it eliminates that question mark. It does. And, Niall, I wanted to go back to what you said because I also agreed with that, um, with your commentary. But g- given given the, the, the profile of the buyer that you said you're working with, for example, the Gen X um, uh, uh, buyers in the co-op, uh, situation. Why are they now deciding to purchase a co-op versus a condo? And especially in light of the fact that, and anybody can chime in as well, but especially in light of the fact that the prices are now equaling or seem to be equaling the condo, where a condo is a little more free and flexible, co-op is a little more rigid. Why are they, I like you made a comment before where they're eager to join, you know, to join these co-op boards, join these private organizations, make changes. Is that the only reason or is there something else that they see in a co-op that they prefer over a condo? Well, you know, all, you know, although you say that the pricing is almost similar, there, I would say that there's still, there's still a, a, a large gap and a difference between the two. So we do start out generally, I'll, I'll show condos and co-ops just to give general perspective of the marketplace. And, you know, when you look at a co-op um, and you see the, the amount of square footage that you get, sure, you might not have you know, crazy concierge services or, you know, roof decks or pools like you get in some of these, you know, new development condos. But in the co-ops, you know, there's certainly more space. You know, they have oftentimes good location in a, in a much lower price point. Um, so I think that's one of the main reasons. And then when they get in there and we talk about the, the pros and the cons about buying in co-ops, the amount that you have to put down, debt-to-income ratio, all that jazz, when we're really starting to get into the thick of things and, like, the, the approval process, um, that's when they're like, you know what, I, and, and you have to effectively coach them on that. And then they start to realize, look, there, there is a change of guard. And when you get out there and you're in the marketplace and you're seeing it happening, that's when they start to make these decisions on their own where they say, look, I want to be a proactive part of this. And, and it's all just an educational process. And they come to realize it on their own. And, you know, a lot of times they're, they're seeing the people, you know, moving in and out of these co-ops or when you're at open houses, you're seeing the demographic that's looking um, at the co-ops. And it, it breeds, you know, um, goodwill to get in there and be a part of this community um, in, a, in, a, in effect change in, in the co-ops overall. Yeah, totally. I agree. And I think and another some... reason that you're seeing this change of guard is the technology factor. So managing agents are now moving into online packages, and I, I think that generation is frustrated, and they don't know how to change with the prime, which is another reason why 
what we're talking about. Like someone in our generation and the X and Y is coming in and saying, let's make the process simple. Let's make it easier. Let's keep the communication better. You know, let's get back to somebody in 48 hours and not three weeks from now. Yeah, and it's all about a vertical community. I mean, a condo, you know, because of, you know, there'll be so many renters, so many, it, it, there's so much movement. It's more of a, it's almost like a microcosm <clears throat> of overall New York where people are just very transitory, whereas, whereas I think co-ops very much have the feel of, of a vertical community. Um, and I think that there is something very attractive about having that communal feeling. Also, and just going back a, and, to basics. On the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, where I do most of my business with all the Gen Xers, they want to be in certain school districts, and there is just not the condo inventory. Mm -hmm. So before they start looking, they have done their research on what it is to be in a co-op, and they like, as uh, Rachel just said and as Niall just said, they like the uh, communal feel, and they want it to be a neighborhood. They want to think, well, Halloween's coming up. If my kids are trick-or-treating, are they trick-or-treating in a condo where I don't know half these people? Or are they in the co-op where I know everyone or there are certain rules? That's a good, that's a good point, Deborah. and I was going to bring that up because, you know, okay. in, in my experience with co-op sales and at the beginning of my career, I did pretty much only co-op sales. And the school choices and the school locations always drove where families needed to live. And, you know, before long before the condos rather started taking over, uh, co-ops were all over the place. So it was easier to buy in a co-op. My my other question to you guys is how does this affect the foreign buyer? Because, again, as I said at the start of this conversation, we don't use these as pied de we don't, we don't, we don't, you don't use, use them as investments. We really can't rent them out. Does this keep the fine, foreign buyer, excuse me, away from buying in co-ops? today, even with the slight changes that are starting to happen? I think it depends on who the foreign buyer is, because in 2009, 2010, when we were in the heart of the recession, I did a huge amount of co-op sales representing the seller who were all foreign nationals. They worked for national corporations that were contracting, and they had to move back to their countries in Europe. But I asked each of them, why did they initially buy in these co-ops? And they said, again, it was the Upper East Side. They wanted the school districts, and they wanted to be part of a community here in New York. And the co-ops were taking them because they weren't the really tough ones. They were a little more um, accepting of people, especially if they were going to live here. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to see what's going to happen going forward with um, a different uh, profile of buyers coming in, younger buyers coming in, people with more money, hence the pricing going up, the prices going up. Let's see what happens in the next five to 10 years. I agree with what Rachel said earlier. I think it's going to be a completely different landscape going forward uh, in the process, the overall process of, of buying and selling in co-ops. And listen, I've owned a couple of co-ops and I've owned a condo and I would, I personally would prefer to live in a co-op. I don't like the transit, transient feel of a condo and not knowing your neighbor from one month to the next. So there are benefits to both. Uh, I personally happen to, uh, you know, prefer a co-op if, you know, I were to be owning another apartment somewhere down the line. Anyway, let's move on. So move-in fees. Move-in fees are always so controversial. Move-out fees, always controversial. Rachel, I think, said a little while ago about managing agents, you know, part of the board package, part of the purchase application is to collect move-in fees. You know, there, there's the deposit one, then there's the refundable one, and then there's a the move-out fee, et cetera. 
why do landlords and or managing agents, because in this particular case, I would consider a managing agent a landlord, uh, for these co-ops and condos charge these fees and are, you know, why are they so controversial to every buyer, at least that I deal with? It's another source of income for for buildings, landlords, and, and managing agents. Um, some, in my experience, I think we'll all agree, some take advantage of that. Um, I don't see any problem in taking a small deposit or fee to move in and move out by the owner and by the tenant or by the buyer and the seller. Makes total sense of, as far as damaging common spaces and common areas. Totally get that. But sometimes you see $2,500. You know, sometimes you see exorbitant fees, and at that point, it does it does anchor people because there are a lot of fees on both the rental and the sales side um, beyond just the move in and move out, application, credit, processing. You know, whatever you want to call it. There's messenger fees. There's filing fees. It goes on and on and on. And and beyond the price per square foot that somebody's already paying for an apartment, you add on those fees, and and it can be quite frustrating. Well, it's even more frustrating when you're renting a condo or renting a, an apartment in a condo building and the renter coming in, you know, with no ownership has the same amount of fees to pay, you know, in their lease application. And that's where it gets sticky sometimes because, you know, uh, they just don't want to pay this. And if the landlord or the owner of that apartment doesn't want to waive it or pick it up themselves, you know, it, it becomes controversial. And I have to tell you something, and I'm working on a board package right now. And it, it, it comes up almost every time. I don't want to pay the move-in fee. Or why do I have to pay a move-out fee when I just sold my apartment and included all the furniture in it? You know, it's like, what could I tell you? You know, Rachel said it's a source of income for these buildings, and it is. Now, there's sometimes a double fee. There's a refundable move-in, and then there's a non-refundable move-in. What is that about? I mean, obviously, you get one back. The other one is for what purpose? The non-refundable one. Source of income. Well, I think I think Rachel hit it on the head. I mean, it's not just um, moving without fees; it's also the crazy application fees. And God, I feel like I'm about to get myself in trouble with my managing agents. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, it's it's a big frustration. And I think that uh, condo and co-op boards need to become a little smarter about this because I, at one point I was frustrated, and you know, this is sort of an interesting story because. I was frustrated that a, a rental application had a huge fee. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like about $1,000. And so and the board package for a condo uh, what looked very much like a co-op purchase packet. So when I got my buyers or my renters to put this package together, I deliberately, deliberately, because we had some time before we needed to move in, deliberately kept out certain information because I just wanted to see if they were even reviewing all the information. And because my, my gut feeling on this was, you know what, there's about six pages out of these 50 pages that they are actually going to look at and keep for their records, and everything else is just there to justify the $1,000 fee. And, of course, there was not one. I mean, they were, like, glaring, like, glaring things that if they were even looking at the pages, they would have said, hey, cruel, I think you missed this entire section, right? I just did it to test it. And I mean, so, and in fact, my renters wanted me to. So it was an interesting sort of experiment. And our package got approved. I bet you nobody looked at those pages because there's no way otherwise that they would have come back and not said something to me. Um, so what I'm starting to see is that, you know, there, there's this 
disconnect between um, condo and co-op boards and their understanding of what management companies are actually providing. Mm-hmm. Plus, they're also paying a monthly fee. I mean, owners themselves are paying fees. Uh, so I really think that there needs to be uh, a better education on the parts of the board so that some of this stuff gets streamlined. Well, regarding I, the I, fees, one of my colleagues at my previous firm did something very smart. He works primarily in sales and rentals in a middle-of-the-range condo on the Upper West Side where the fees have gone sky-high, higher than anyone else. And it's not that fancy a condo. So he saved for about a year all the emails he had gotten from owners, from renters, from sellers, from buyers, and put them all together and submitted them to the managing agent and the co-op condo, excuse me, condo board president, about how outrageous this was, how nobody wants to rent in this condo anymore because they couldn't get any renters because of the high fees. Mm-hmm. And last I heard, they're thinking of rent of lowering them. And you know what I've noticed is it's not about buildings. It's about the, the, what managing company that they're using. And at this point, I'm sure all of us, if we were to name names, we'd be able to tick off the ones that we think are do a fantastic job and really are logical about what information they ask for what for what reason and what the fees are or not. And then there are others who are just archaic, unwilling to change, still don't have applications online, and the list goes on. So really, I mean, some of what, you know, Gen X, Gen, Gen Y are coming in doing with co-ops, uh, hopefully, uh, and, you know, being on boards and more active, I'm hoping that that will have a trickle-down effect uh, with the managing agents and, and companies as well. All right, we've got to go to break, guys, but just so you know, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to dedicate a whole hour to the managing agents because I think we need to better understand for our listening audience what their role is and, and, and how we have to play with them on a daily basis. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. Uh, I'm talking to the panel, Niall Lundgren from Dalian Real Estate, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman. 
Earl Brombat from Core Group and Deborah Hoffman from Town. Just uh, another reminder, the New York City Condo Expo next Thursday, November 6th at the New York Hilton. I will be moderating a session uh, from, I think, 12 noon to about 1.45, so please stop by and see us. It seems to be uh, a great expo uh, being planned. Anyway, so next topic, living on the highest floor in a building. You know, what are the benefits to living on a high floor in a New York apartment house? You know, when we start out with buyers, oftentimes, you know, in your vetting process, when you're talking to them about the wish list and things that they want or in some cases don't want, a lot of times my buyers say to me, I'd like to live on a high floor or the highest floor possible. And, you know, that's fine. Um, Sometimes they're available, sometimes they're not. But it always seems to me that every time I have a client that wants a high floor, there isn't anything available except on low floors and and vice versa. But anyway, that's the the trials of New York real estate. Guys, what are some of the high points or some of the pros to living on high floors? And also, what are some of the cons of living on high floors? I mean, is it really the cat's meow? I think so. I mean, I live on the top floor myself. I am. I have a skylight, so that's always good. And I think, you know, when you live in New York, especially when you hit the winter months, any amount of light that you can spare is extremely valuable. And um, I have a lot of clients. I've sold a number of houses. I have a number of clients that want um, top floors simply because of the light. If you're talking about a walk-up, yeah, you might have to walk up, um, but that's the, that's part of the game, and you're going to see that in co-ops more often than condos. And um, in general, I think light is the, is the most important thing in terms of pros. Light also, no noise and from the I also live on the top floor, and um, it's really nice to sort of just have n- nobody walking and stomping with their heels on right above you, which I've lived on lower floors before, and I really, really appreciate that. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to comment on because I live on the 10th floor and I think there are 16 or 17 floors in my building. And it's really frustrating and really annoying. And I have a neighbor upstairs that, you know, has not delighted me for the past 11 years. And she walks around on these heels constantly and bangs things and drops things. And, you know, sometimes it's it's really annoying and obnoxious. And other times you just say, well, you know, whatever it is, what it is. But some of the drawbacks, I think, though, to high floors, and again, this is my personal opinion, you know, if you're on the top floor under a roof, you've got to be careful with water leak possible, you know, possibilities, because that does happen. And also, I found, because I have lived on much higher floors, and certainly, uh, you know, once on the top, top floor, noise seems to travel up a building. For example, once on the 24th floor, you know, if you had your windows open and I'm sitting on my sofa in the living room, I was able to actually hear full conversations from people standing on the street in front of my building or across the street where on lower floors sometimes you don't you don't get that much noise. You hear something, but it's kind of muffled and you don't really get the full conversation. But surprisingly, and I was shocked by this, on the 24th floor, I would hear full conversations, and I, I wasn't in real estate at the time, and I asked somebody about that, and they said, you know what? Noise actually travels up the building and to the point where the conversation is very clear. Do any of you who live on these high floors have that experience, or is it you know, just something that you know, I've experienced in my past you know, on higher floors versus, you know, say, 10 or lower? Well, first of all, you're hearing... <laughs> Well, I have had it with many of my sellers 
where you could hear it, but it goes street by street. It depends how many very high buildings you have there, so the echoes bounce off of it. If you're next to a big open space, you're not going to get that. It depends street by street, and I think we should all sit down with engineers and ask them how it works. Yeah, um, I think you're right, but it, but again, you know, it seems to me, you know, that that you hear such great, uh, great amount of noise, and and again, not always, but you know, you, you get a lot more noise. But I'm more concerned about the water leaks, and I'm more concerned about you know stuff like that wind. You know, in windy periods, you know, like the other night, I think or a couple of days ago, we had some strong winds. You know, on high floors, you just seem to feel it much much more, but you can't beat it for views and you certainly can't beat it for light because it's, you know, it's extraordinary. And in this town, if you can get one or both of those, you're very lucky. I was Um, on a low floor, as Vince knows. Vince has seen my apartment years ago, my first apartment in the city, uh, facing a brick wall. I didn't hear a thing. It was soundproof. In fact, during Sandy, I didn't even know there was a storm going on. And because it was dark all the time, I just felt beautiful all the time. The lighting was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on 10 and I'm, I'm, you know, other than my noisy neighbor upstairs from time to time, you know, I think my vantage point in the middle of the building with open views and, and good light, you know, it seems to work. But, you know, again, as somebody said, it's, it's all individual. It's street by street. It's building by building. There's, I, there's one thing I can honestly say when I talk to buyers in this town, you know, it, it really, it always depends and it depends on lots of things. So you've got to take for what it is. And, you know, when you're out there searching, you look around and you, and you, and you feel the space, you look at the space and you ask questions. And uh, some people it, don't even want a lot of light and some people don't want, you know, the views. Some are okay with facing water towers. I mean, I well, remember let, showing uh, yeah. 210 Lafayette and there was like literally 47 water towers. And I was mm-hmm. like, how <laughs> am I going to sell this? And someone walked in and was like, what a New York City view. This is great. Well, so, I was going to say, yeah. you know, what, you know what, is, what is the drive when people want to move downtown, for example, to Soho and Tribeca, the traditional first and second generation lofts? You know, they went down there for not for light, not for views, mostly brick walls, but an enormous amount of space to raise families and to have a great living space to just enjoy because you weren't getting anything else. Now in those mm-hmm. neighborhoods, you know, with the new condo development uh, surge, you have some taller buildings. But for the most part, you know, those are those neighborhoods in the early days, you weren't getting any light and you weren't getting any any kind of view. And so, mm-hmm. you know, for some people, a brick wall is going to, you know, get old really quickly. And for some people, you know, it, it's, a, it's a level of comfort and it's a level of privacy and it's a level of peace and quiet. So again, mm-hmm. something for everybody. It's Absolutely. Really well, since, you know, going back to what you were originally saying about high floors, the one thing I do want to point out is, um, you know, um, when you take out like the walk-ups and whatnot, um, if you look at, you know, your typical doorman or doorman elevator building, a penthouse floor, just when somebody buys something that says penthouse, um, that immediately adds a certain amount of value to the apartment because um, it's a status symbol. And so while Niall and I were talking about um, the benefits of living on the highest floor, uh, you know, investment value is definitely not something that we shouldn't consider. Um, In other words, you know, I I definitely feel that 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 definitely is one of the reasons, um, whether it's for the status or for the investment reason, uh, those are also two additional reasons why people tend to buy or insist on wanting the highest floor um, versus just the high floor for light and other purposes. Um, to your point about roof leaks, um, my apartment, I've had my roof leak about four times in the eight years that I've lived here. And um, because it's a building issue and the building takes care of it, 
as much as it's an annoyance, um, you know, it's something that it's it, at the end of the day, it's about your patience level. So for me, I've just been able to just sort of shrug it off and say, okay, you know what? So there's, I have to put out a pot until somebody comes in and fixes it. If it were my own townhouse, I think I'd look at it differently. So I think that still, I find it to be worthwhile to be on the top floor. Yeah, and one of the other benefits of being on a top floor, listen, especially if you're in a building with a rooftop, I mean, you're you're obviously closer <laughs> to the rooftop than anybody else, whether you have to walk up a flight of stairs or push the elevator button, you're closer to get there than anybody else. Again, there there are there are pros and cons to all, and again, for light purposes, for privacy, uh, lack of noise, for views, I mean, you, you really can't beat it in, as you said, you know, when you're when you're looking at Pricing apartments in this town, obviously the higher you go in a building, for obvious reasons, the more expensive the apartment per square foot is. Certainly coming from new development, spending years uh, selling out buildings on the new condo side, you know, there was a premium per floor, even on the lower floors. The higher you went in a building, the more uh, the higher the price was. And certainly when you got up to the penthouse floors, you know, those the price per square foot, you know, in, in a lot of cases was almost double. So there is more benefit and there is more pro uh, to high floor living than there is uh, con. So um, for that, you know, people appreciate it and are willing to pay a premium. Again, you go downtown to the, the, the older, you know, more traditional loft, first generation, second generation housing stock. You don't have high floors. These buildings weren't that tall. And in those days, you know, when they converted from commercial use, use to uh, residential use, it was, again, about the space and not necessarily about anything else because families were growing out of space in the midtown, uptown neighborhoods and needed to find places where they can spread out and have, you know, uh, good family living. Um, and then, any... you know, so there's one exception that I'd love to bring up, too, which is, sure. um, you know, if you're park-facing, if you have a park-facing unit, let's say, on Madison Square Park. Central Park is not such a big deal because you get such a beautiful view pretty much from any floor after about the fifth or the sixth once you break the tree line. But if you're around a smaller park, it's actually interesting because people have this assumption that the highest floor is going to have the best view. But, for instance, like to to use it as an example, like 26 Madison Square North um, is this gorgeous pre-war building that overlooks the park and the best views are really in the mid-floor level because once you get to the penthouse level, you're so far up from the park that you get great open sky, but you mm-hmm. don't really get the benefit of the trees and the greenery. So yeah. there are exceptions for sure. Yeah, no, and, and I 100% agree with that because, you know, tree-line views or just above the tree-line, there's a building on Central Park West that I uh, rent in and sell in all the time, 25 Central Park West, and I think it's like the 13th and 14th floor in that building, and it's like a 40-story building or 30-something story, that's about the, the you know, mark where, you know, you get the most extraordinary views. You get the entire park, of course, but you're not looking directly at trees and you're not too far up where you're looking down. Anyway, we're going to take a break and we'll be back right after these messages, so don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and we're uh, talking to our panel so the next topic, you know, I was looking at this week is, you know, it's interesting how every day you read and as we all do in our industry to keep up with what's happening and, and where is the market? Is it up? Is it down? Is it flatline? Is it whatever? And, you know, I think we're, 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 we've changed a little bit, certainly still a hot marketplace, but a little bit of changes here and there, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but it's interesting. I was reading an article this week about New York listings that have fizzled, meaning they've been on the market for a while or they came out with such pizzazz and such, you know, whatever, that they've lingered and lingered in some cases, you know, over a year uh, and they haven't moved. Luxury apartments don't always sell like hotcakes, especially in markets that are changing, as I just said. Every broker in New York, including all of us, has had a listing that lingers. And you don't know why sometimes. I mean, you can scratch your head. You can, you know, ask your colleagues, talk to your manager, you know, whatever. You know, it's just one of those things. And I have actually two of them right now that are lingering. And in in these two cases, they should have really kind of almost flown off the shelf. And my partner and I are kind of perplexed and in, in, in just, you know, I don't even know what to say to the seller sometimes when they ask on a routine basis, what's happening? Why isn't it selling, et cetera? Priced right in one case. The other case, we just did a price reduction this morning. So let's see what that does. But, you know, why are some of these listings fizzling? You know, here's a couple of examples. At 150 West 56th Street, asking price $100 million on the market, 520 days. Okay, this is the Uber marketplace. 795 Fifth Avenue, asking price, $95 million, 568 days on the market. 20 West 53rd Street, $60 million, 593 days on the market. And 56 Leonard Street, a penthouse, asking $34.5 million, 582 days on the market. Where are these buyers? I mean, well, we, we've, we've talked for weeks about the uber wealthy, the foreign investors. You know, where are these buyers? A lot of it comes down to basic economics. Is the reason wealthy people are wealthy is they know how to hold on to their money. They know what a deal is, whether they're in a hedge fund or they run a big corporation, and they know what's just flash and what's something that's a a headline grabber. A few of these um, apartments I have actually seen and been in, and after I left, I thought to myself, I don't know what drugs they're taking, but I wish they'd share with me what it comes with the price. Oh, I I totally agree. Yeah. 
It brings but, a lot of publicity in, and, and that's a nice thing to tell a seller. To, Go ahead, Nia. I was going to say, I think some of it comes down to, you know, price expectations and mismatches between buyers and sellers. And when we have a market where bright and shiny apartments are popping up every day, buyers are asking themselves, what else is out there? Or they're asking the broker, hey, do you think anything else is coming to the market? So, you know, although an apartment might, might be, you know, bright and shiny for one day, if it's a little overpriced, especially in a market where we're seeing that's, that's slowing a little bit, that, that allows for the buyers to say, wait, let me just pull back a little bit. And then it, it tends to linger. And then nobody wants to, to make a bid on an apartment that's been on the market for a long time. So you know, I think it comes right. down to just, you know, mismatches um, in pricing and, and just different expectations between buyers and sellers. I, I, I totally just, agree with that. Deborah's point is that, you know, if you look at a, an investor like Scott Bomber, for instance, um, he has been in the papers over the last 15 years at least about how he buys these the Uber properties, $30, $40 million properties, and then he flips them within eight months to two years. Um, when you look at his formula, I mean, he's a hedge fund owner. Um, he's consistently looking at these places and looking for places at these price points saying, okay, if I buy this in the next two, three, five years, am I going to be able to – is this going to have an investment proposition, right? Um, so whether it is that they're parking their money in a property or whether they're looking to flip it, um, the fact of the matter is is that there is definitely a formula and in 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 it's not like they're just throwing any amount of money at anything. And in um, some properties sort of hold up to those standards and others don't. So there is, because of this Uber market, I think there are a lot of sellers who start thinking that they can jump in and capitalize. But a lot of times, unless they have something that, you know, has sort of, you know, all the, all the right um, foundational points of why they can charge that sort of an Uber luxury price in a specific building for a specific unit, it's going to fit. All right. So, for example, I hear you, but for example, you know, Dolly Lenz just recently announced, you know, 22 Bond Street, a very boutique condominium uh, down in the East Village. And, you know, after reporting how some of these these high-end Uber, you know, priced apartments are fizzling, she's come into market from starting at $3,200 a foot up to $5,000 a foot. Okay, so translated, and we're talking about large-size apartment, 4,000 square feet, uh, 2,800 square feet. So do the math. These apartments are going to be in those price points. How successful is she? And I'm not picking on, on, on Dolly. I'm just saying how successful is she and or this building going to be at these I prices? It's, it's a psychological value that's created in those situations, right? So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that the property does have the underpinnings to, to sell to a specific market segment. But what happens, especially when it's a new development, so if you look at Bond Street specifically, right? So Ian Schrager Building and a couple of the others, um, they went up there, um, when was it, like about 2005, yeah. when Bond Street was, I mean, really, I mean, there was nothing going on in that area, in that neighborhood, and that row of buildings, about three or four of them, as new developments established that neighborhood as a whole. Um, if you look at what happened there, it was because there were these brokers and developers who had personal relationships and had enough people, just like 15 Central Park West, 
um, who they were able to pre-sell into the building and then name drop about, like, so-and-so bought in this building, we're getting a certain sort of caliber, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, this, you know, the, the, the selling point wasn't necessarily even how great the property was. It was built at a certain caliber, but it wasn't that it was so amazing and so above everything else that hits the market. It was about the vertical neighborhood concept. So if you're really going to be able to cater a building and succeed on that high-end luxury level of, in a building, it's about creating a neighborhood that, that people of that caliber want to live in. Yeah, and, and certainly that neighborhood has come so far along from even just when I began in real estate 13 or 14 years ago to where it is today. And, you know, uh, I, I think they can probably justify and or get these prices uh, because, as you said, Parul, it's, a, it's, it's more than just the price of the apartment. There's a whole hell of a lot that goes into that decision-making <laughs> process. Miami condo developers looking for buyers in New York City. So marketing a multimillion-dollar condo uh, property in New York seems, you know, hardly seems newsworthy. But what if the property is located in Miami? So the Ritz-Colton Residences in Miami Beach is looking for wealthy New Yorkers to purchase second homes on the ocean. Pricing for units run from two million to forty million, with average price per square foot between twelve hundred and thirteen hundred dollars. I say wow to that. Uh, there was recently a broker open house here in New York to introduce New York agents to this property development. How do how does any developer or sales office from Miami or anywhere attract buyers here in New York? And question, you know, also to to you guys is. Is there a marketplace out there for the New Yorker wanting to buy in Miami? I think hats off to the developers for for throwing the party in New York. I think (laughs) there's a special relationship between New York City and Miami. And, you know, a lot of my clients own in Miami. So capitalizing on that, when you're seeing, you know, very, very low inventory in New York, you know, capitalizing on the fact that, you know, buyers still want to buy. And if they can't afford or they're a little bit priced out, in New York City, or they already own potentially one apartment, you know, Miami might, might be the, uh, the next best option for them. And to have a pied-a-terre, a place where they can go, you know, when it gets very cold in New York City, go down to Miami, you know, that's very, very um, attractive and appealing. And, you know, I find myself going down there to hang out in the, in the you know, December, January months with my clients, owners, developers, et cetera. Yeah, Listen, actually, I, I totally agree saying, with you, you know, because Miami's I think... Sixth borough. It takes as long well, to yeah. take a plane over there as it does the L train to Brooklyn. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> well, listen, there you go. But, you know, my, my, to, much to my surprise, how the Miami market came back, it took a long time. You know, that whole South Florida marketplace was dead forever. It took a long time to come back, but it's not only back, it's screaming back. And I agree uh, with, with you guys. I think it's going to be, it, I think it's here to stay. And I think it's being priced accordingly. And I think people are very interested uh, in purchasing down there as second homes, you know, whatever, uh, and maybe eventual retirement homes because of the the, the beautiful weather. And and Miami is actually a beautiful city. Anyway, once again, we run out of time. Uh, That's Good Morning New York for this week. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific time live. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining me, and I will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in this week. 
Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back. 